This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. What's your most memorable menu, John T? And I don't really mean like a dish that you ate. Right. Printed menu itself. It's easy. It's, it's on my wall right now, framed, and it's from July 22nd, 1999. It was the day the SFA was founded, and we celebrated that occasion at Highlands Bar and Grill afterward. And everyone gathered, and we ate butter bean crostini with marjoram, and we ate rabbit perlu and grilled Destin grouper and Jubilee watermelon. And looking back now, looking at that menu, I love all the names and, and place names and specificity. They added up to something special. I think mine's probably when I finally got to go to Shopson's in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Yep. I've been reading about that menu forever. And so I remember blisters on my sisters and like eight varieties of Pete's. Or it could be the menu from Charlie Trotter's in 1992, which was 11 courses, four of them dessert, um, at least one of them gooey duck. <laughs> I was very fancy back then, John T. And I was still enchanted with tasting menus. If you remember the menu, is that a sign that the menu writing was extraordinary or maybe the chef was a lit major in college? <laughs> so it begs the question, what's the purpose of a menu anyway? I'm not sure. I mean, do menus today intend to be more than just bills of fare? Are you supposed to read them for producers and sources sort of the way you watch the credits at the end of a movie? Good question. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. For this episode of Gravy, Sarah Brooke Curtis explores menus as text, as literature even, with professional eaters and menu hoarders, John Kessler and Hannah Raskin. For years... A menu from the now-defunct Ubuntu restaurant in Napa, California, was scotch-taped to the inside of my kitchen cabinet in San Francisco. That meal presented me with one of the best bites of my life. Corn grits with goat's milk whey and caramelized wild onion bulbs. Eventually, the menu became sticky and stained, a messy archive of everything I cooked during those years. Menus are the one tangible takeaway from an otherwise fleeting experience. How can we not take some time to study them in the same way we might study a piece of literature? I'm sitting at the bar at The Ordinary, a seafood-centric restaurant in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. I'm drinking a glass of orange wine and looking over their menu, and I notice that the mixed drinks have memorable and clever names that seem to invite conversation. I catch bartender Brad Klein shaking up a cocktail and ask if he's the one responsible for naming the drinks. He proudly tells me yes, and wants to know which one I like best. The restaurant is packed, but he leans over to tell me about the voodoo lady. Sometimes I'll start with a title, and I'll end up working backwards and working a recipe out of the title, such as the voodoo lady. 
So we've got a blend of rums, one coming from Haiti, one coming from Jamaica. So it's a dark spirits cocktail, not for everyone, but also comes from a band that is not for everyone as well. One of my favorite bands, Ween, so we ended up with the name Booty Lady. We talked about some of the other drink names. One of them was just a nod to a private joke between coworkers, perhaps meant to tickle him and his buddy more than enhance the experience of the diner. It got me thinking about menu writing and its relationship to the audience. I went to the Post and Courier office to talk to their food editor-in-chief critic, Hannah Raskin. We got philosophical about menus and scoured the collection that she keeps in her desk drawer. It doesn't get open much these days, since she can revisit most restaurant menus online. She pointed out that the food menu at The Ordinary was a little unusual, because it's broken up into hot and cold dishes. You know, you think about dividing the hot and cold, that's a very chefy way to think about things. That's how you divide the kitchen. That's not really how a, a patron eats, necessarily. It's also compelling, because it presents an unusual invitation into the dining experience, inspiring the diner to engage with the menu in a new way shaking up the typical appetizer, entree, dessert structure. Structure. How does menu structure shape how we read a menu? I asked Hannah if she considered menus to be a type of literature. I mean, they're certainly part of the historical record. Boy, I mean, they are an aesthetic artifact. Are they literature? I mean, I don't know that you could parse it in a million different ways. I would imagine to be considered literature, it has to be open to multiple interpretations. I would think a menu is a failure if that's the case. As a critic, Hannah remembers how valuable menus were before the internet. Because there was no way to remember what you'd eaten. I mean, you could sort of, but we didn't, you know, you, you took notes as best you could. But so anyway, so there was a whole subculture of stealing menus, you know, and so you had to know how to be able to sneak it out or just send someone in when you weren't there. So there was always this element of thievery that is no longer part of criticism. So I kept every menu for a really long time. I actually ended up when I was working in Seattle, I, I donated the collection to the library because I wasn't sure who else was doing that at that time. Hannah wasn't the only one to donate a restaurant menu collection to a library. The New York Public Library houses tens of thousands of restaurant menus, dating back from the early 19th century until the present day. The menu collection began in 1899 by a woman named Miss Frank E. Butolf, who had a voracious appetite for collecting restaurant menus. By the time she died in 1924, she had contributed more than 25,000 menus to the collection. Much of it is now digitized. Filmmakers, sociologists, food writers, and historians use the archive for research and inspiration. I caught food writer and former dining critic for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, John Kessler, on his long drive back from a reporting trip. John was used to getting press kits with lots of info about the chef and restaurant, but to him, it was often the menu that caught his attention first. Because I just felt that the way the menu was written was the clearest predictor for whether or not it would be an interesting restaurant to me. Now, not necessarily the best restaurant, but the most interesting to explore, to write about, to tell readers about. I always thought I could tell that from a, you know, a good pass on the menu. Since John is a relatively recent transplant to Chicago, I was curious about his perspective on the differences between menus in Southern restaurants and those in the Midwest. There's a little more push on the provenance of the ingredients in the South. You know, there's definitely be references to Southern repertoire and Southern ingredients, but there are Anson Mills grits or Geechee Boy grits or Gum Creek Farms, and you 
you, you see that also in Chicago, but the Southern menu say a little bit more, look at the ingredients, and the Chicago menu say a little bit more, look what this amazing chef can do. What about specific language choices in menus? What are the turnoffs? Here's Hannah again. I think the biggest turnoff on a menu is one that is intentionally inscrutable, whether that be like handwriting that you can't read or nicknames that only mean something to the kitchen. If the restaurant is trying to project that they know more than the customer does, I don't think that's a good start. Additionally, I'm sure, you know, we know all about the little um, caveats about we won't change anything. This menu is as it's intended and we have no interest in your input on it. That also comes across as a little hostile. And here's John. Like, for instance, when you see lies on a menu, when you see things that are described as crispy rather than fried, when you don't have any sense of, like, how rich our how lean the food is going to be. That turns me off a bit. I also, though, I want to see, like, the personality of the chef at work. It's what I think our job is as restaurant critics and also people who read menus is figuring out what is, what's being name-dropped as cachet and what is really telling the chef's point of view. Just like literary texts, the style and descriptive language of a restaurant menu resonates with some more than others. There was that trend of where they put like 14 ingredients and you have no idea which is the main ingredient on your plate. You're like, oh yeah, I love Brussels sprouts. And you're like, but I didn't order the lobster. You know, it's so confusing. Sometimes you laugh at these menus. People think, you know, you look at something that'll say, you know, nasturtium, cockle, lavender. And that's, you know, that's the, the menu description. That might not be quite enough, but at least it te- you get a sense of the fact that all the ingredients are going to matter. The chef is interested in putting together something that you haven't had before. I call them lazy menus when the chef just writes the ingredients and puts those in because they don't give you any, any personality of that item. It's just different ingredients making up the item. But when there's a little story about it, then then there's more to the item. And so, you know, you tell us why or where or how that you came across these items. That way the guest will get more of an, an experience. That's Greg Rapp. And he thinks about menus more than anyone I've ever met. We'll get to know him and his work after the break. When we come back, our reporter, Sarah Brooke Curtis, explains who's really writing the menus at your favorite restaurant. And here's a spoiler alert, it might not be the chef. But first, warm weather is headed our way and with it seasonal produce, sweet strawberries, crisp cucumbers, and tomatoes fresh off the vine. Those are my favorites. I'm looking forward to all the dishes I'll create this summer with Lodge Cast Iron's new chef collection. Made in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, each chef collection item is seasoned and ready to use. The skillet delivers the even heating I've grown to expect from Lodge and the lifted handles make it easy to hold and maneuver. That's important to me. It's perfect for sauteing summer squash or searing sausage and fresh peppers. The sloped sides of my chef collection skillet makes stirring made from scratch tomato sauce a breeze. Gather your ingredients, invite your friends. Wow them with your skills and Lodge Cast Iron Chef Collection Skillet. For Lodge Cast Iron's contributions to summer gatherings and for their continued support of this podcast, we thank them. Hi, 
It's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them Gravy said hey. A lot of thought and strategy goes into writing and designing menus, whether a chef owner is trying to communicate their culinary vision and personality or a restaurant group is trying to find unifying aesthetics across concepts. I thought to myself, there must be someone who builds their career around menus, which is how I found the term menu engineer. It turns out there's just one self-proclaimed menu engineer in the United States, and he's built a very successful career for himself. I'm Greg Rapp, and for 37 years, I've been engineering menus. I've worked with one pro basketball team and I've worked with football teams where they want to increase their concession. I've gone in and helped big arenas lay out their menus. I've worked on hot dog stands, high-end restaurants, trains, planes, amusement parks, theme parks, cruise ships. Yes, I've been paid to go on cruise ships. I love my job. So how does Greg engineer a menu? Typically, I go in on a Sunday, and I'm incognito, and I order my food, and then the next day I meet with the client, and that's what I call the state of the menu meeting. He'll find out what's worked and what hasn't worked. He'll ask them about their competition. They give him the sales mix so he can see what's popular. They give him food costs so he can see what's profitable. And then I study those numbers for a couple days, and then on Thursday of that week, I bring everybody into the room, and that's the art director and the owner of the restaurant or the the team, and I give them a um, seminar on menu tools, and I show them before and after menu menus. I teach them about the personality types of people because people read menus differently. Some diners want to read the whole menu, and they study it. Others don't want to look at the menu at all. They just say, bring me what's good. Some people want to order what's trendy, maybe something they read about on Yelp. And some are literally just in the restaurant because they want to be around the types of people that eat there. Greg will learn about the restaurant's clientele. Then he'll take the menu and... I'll actually photocopy it, cut it up, and lay it out the way I would lay it out. And then menu whispering is when the team comes in and they go, No, no, Greg, let's put this item in that good spot. Let's put this item up here. Let's talk more about this item. So at the end of that Thursday, they've got a new menu that's ready to go to the art director who's been working with us all day. So that art director now knows what's going on. So he or she can then help the client add a box or do an illustration. The art director sends Greg proofs. They test the menu on diners and establish some new goals. He guarantees clients that if they don't make a thousand bucks in their first month, he'll give them their fees back. He's never had to give the client their money back, so something is working. He insists that this is not only useful for big chain restaurants and tells me that every restaurant should have someone that they assign as art director, whether it be an employee or a local artist. In his mind, designing that menu and keeping it fresh is integral to a restaurant's success. 
He cites psychology books and specific articles throughout our conversation. Research guides his process. We're now going in and we're putting eye-tracking glasses on guests and then we watch how they read a menu and then we can load those different files up and we can find the hot spots on where guests go on the menu. Then we can, you know, take a look and put the items in those spots that we want. But but we're always going to be directing that with boxes or illustrations or photographs. I asked John Kessler if he knows of Greg Rapp, the self-proclaimed menu engineer. I, I always knew that there were consultants who helped big restaurant groups write their menus. I didn't know that the word menu engineering was a term. And just it brought to mind this kind of notion of social engineering, which, you know, made me feel a little uh, uneasy about the thought of it. I mean, what, what they're trying to engineer is, you know, our reactions to the food rather than just, you know, you, you know, it seems like your basic pack with the menu is it's just it's presenting itself to you rather than being engineered to lure you in. It's not just words on a menu that convey a message, says Greg. It's layout and typeface. You know, type is a magic ingredient in in menus. We try and use a serif typeface over a sans serif. Serifs are the little feet that are on a typeface. Um, There can be thousands of, of serif typefaces, but every magazine or every newspaper has always used a serif typeface because they tell us, you can read nine words more per minute with a serif than sans serif. And sans serif means there are no serifs on the typeface, of course. There are thousands of sans serif typefaces, but they're hipper and cooler. You just know it's a little harder to read, and that's why you'll make the type a little bit bigger. I suppose just like some novels are written, structured, and marketed to be bestsellers, and some are so niche, so much about the writer's mind and perspective, that they're not really focused on pleasing an audience. Menus are like that too. And for food critics who are in the business of writing about food, the menu is the one tangible thing to examine from their dining out experience. I'm back at the Post and Courier with Hannah. She's leafing through her stack of saved menus trying to find some gems. This is always funny on a menu where there's like <laughs> where there's one adjective on the entire. I mean, I guess baked and fried are adjectives, but I think it's really funny that they have unbelievable gravies and everything else is just garden peas, lima beans. Most of the menus were takeout menus, uh, but quite a few of them were for restaurants mm-hmm. that are now closed. She's looking at them like artifacts, like paper time machines. Oh, I forgot about this place. (laughs) John holds on to old menus that represent significant nights of his life, like the time he went to the Ritz-Carlton in Buckhead in Atlanta for their last night of service, and the staff all signed the menu. He keeps special menus in his dad's old war chest, along with a baseball signed by one of his heroes and his college diploma. It's quite powerful, and I really do think it's amazing. You know, you have a bite of something that reminds you of your childhood and it brings you back. But you just look at the freaking completely out-of-date font used on this menu that you went to when you were 22 and it was an important meal for you, and that night is just suddenly back there in your mind, as clear as can be. So, are menus literature? 
Do they need metaphors and similes to be considered so? I'm certain they are richer than just an informational document. But are they worth studying and waxing poetic about? Do they provide windows into history, culture, character? Is there potential for their form to evolve over time? I think, I think the basic point of all of this is, you know, there is no other short text that we interact with and respond to as much as we do with menus. And I think, like, because of that, just this whole idea of looking at the textuality of menus is going to always be with us. Gravy was reported and produced by Sarah Brooke Curtis, whose love for radio storytelling started at five years old when she whispered the name of her crushes into a tape recorder and performed her own sassy talk shows. Special thanks go to... We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Laster, who's sitting right next to me right now, serves as our publisher. Enjoy listening to Gravy so much that you're ready to go on a trip with SFA? Join us June 14th and 15th for our summer field trip to Bentonville, Arkansas, where we'll explore how the want for work and the need for labor define Northwest Arkansas and its people. Visit southernfoodways.org to purchase your tickets and learn more. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us ladle some gravy in your ear.